0: Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses basically 8 through the end of the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3, I'd like to begin by reading this morning um, verses 8 through 13 to start off with. I want to thank Pastor Arthur for teaching for me last Sunday. I had planned to be here between now and the Lord's return, um, but I caught that. Uh, horrible sickness that everybody's getting, so um, it's good to have godly men step in and preach the word. Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse eight. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand year, uh, years, like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, and that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. Verse 13, But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Yikes. As Peter is closing uh, what would be his last recorded letter to the churches peter's designed the church to be mindful of the return of Jesus Christ where on the one hand it will bring salvation to those who believe in Jesus Christ on this on the other hand it will bring destruction to the rest of the world which is basically culminates in the day of the lord where the lord will have a judgment of the unrighteous before him after the worlds are destroyed. And then after that judgment happens, he will create a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And that's what's on the apostle's mind as he is is departing this world. That's what he's thinking about regarding the church and what we should be mindful of and what what should be on our hearts and our minds. Not very popular. I don't really hear this message taught very much. How many of you? This is what the Apostle Peter is is saying to the church. He's saying, I I want your minds to be quickened. I want you all to be thinking about these things because this is what's coming. We have a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to deliver us from this that's coming on. But make no mistake, this is where all of human history is headed to, to this moment. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, at the beginning of this chapter, he said, I want, I want you to be moved and, and quick, and the reason why I'm writing it to you is I want you to have wholesome thinking. In other words, that we would have our minds set on this truth, and then he goes on and says that, that, that we would live holy and godly lives in verse 11. He says that. That our minds would be so focused on the truth that our lives would reflect it. Make Make sense? And I pray that as the church 2,000 years later is ever closer to the return of Jesus, that we would be focused on Jesus' literal return. And it would turn our lives into a humble, um, well, that we would humbly obey our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until that day. And so let's pray with that as we begin. Lord, we ask that you would quicken our hearts as we finish this beautiful letter to your church and we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make all the applications that are supposed to happen in our lives. You know exactly what's going on and what will come of this world and when that will happen. And Lord, right now, we, we ask that you would teach us to focus on you, but also on how to live in light of all that you have said will happen. And Lord, give us the faith to trust you not only in, in word, but in deed. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We left off a couple of weeks ago in verses 8 through 10 where Peter is addressing the reason why Jesus is delaying his return. Apparently, mockers had come into the church already. It had been a little while after Jesus had, had died. And, and so people are going, you know, as Christians, we believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ. A literal return. That's, that's orthodox teaching of Christianity. We believe that Jesus Christ physically is going to return to the earth. If you don't hold to that, then you don't hold to what the, t- the Scriptures teach, what Jesus taught, what Peter taught, what all the apostles of the New Testament teach. And if, if you don't hold to that teaching and you decide to hold on to the other ones you like, then you've got issues. As we all do, as we kind of grow in our walk with the Lord, we realize, oh, I like this one, but I don't like that one. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a package deal. And mockers had come and said, hey, you guys are all crazy. You're believing that Jesus is going to return to the earth. The guy's dead in the ground. We still believe that Jesus is going to return 2,000 years later. So mockers are probably abounding even more. And it's easy for unbelievers really to mock Christians because it has been 2,000 years, and yet the Lord has not come back. Any of you guys wonder, okay, well, Jesus hasn't come back. He said he's going to come back, and so basically, uh, I must have read the Bible wrong, or they must have got it wrong, or that doesn't really apply to today. And that's kind of where we go with our, with our theology and our thinking is we tend to, because God hasn't made true on what he said yet, we're going to change what he said to meet whatever's going on in our current culture or circumstances. And Peter says, don't, don't fall into that. Hold, hold true. He's returning. And as the church was facing these mockers in us today, um, it's especially true that we would be mocked. That as we are living holy and godly lives in anticipation for the return of our Lord at any moment, in the midst of a perverse generation of which we've all been a part of that God saved us out of and we live in, as we wait for his appearance, there's no doubt people are going to be mocking us. That's to be expected. But why is Jesus taking so long? Why hasn't he returned? That's a really valid question. And Peter says in verses 8 and 9 why the Lord hasn't come in yet, and we already went over this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends or beloved. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Our perception of slowness is not God's slowness. Instead, here's the thing, He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Some of you in this room have never given your hearts to Jesus Christ. You have not surrendered your lives to the Lord. You've played church or whatever it might be. The Lord is patient with you, just as He's been patient with me. What an important thing to know about God. The reason the Lord is delaying is because on, one, on the one hand, it was going to bring deliverance for everybody who's saved, but on the other hand, the reason why he's waiting is because he's going to bring destruction on those who are not. And that tells you something about God's character, that he is slow to anger. He is slow to wrath. And I praise the Lord for that. So Peter says, "God is slow because He desires that none would perish; that everyone would come to repentance." That's something we need to know about God. God is slow to anger. The first time this attribute is mentioned is when Moses in the Old Testament in Exodus is on Mount Sinai, and he's taking up the stone tablets as God had told him. He's, he's bringing those, tab- those tablets up to the Lord, where He's going to go ahead and the Lord's going to go ahead and chisel out the, uh, the law. And as he's bringing those up to the Lord in Exodus 34, 5-7, through seven, God reveals himself to Moses. And this is how God reveals himself to Moses. He says, "Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name to him, the Lord. And verse 6 says, of Exodus 34, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Do you see that? Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's how God first reveals himself. Amen? Man, I cling to that. God is a slow to anger God. Praise the Lord. He is merciful. He's compassionate. He longs to forgive sin. That's his very nature, and I think that's very important to know as we've been talking chapter after chapter and verse after verse about the judgment of God, because that's what it's saying. We're there. So I'm going to hunker down for a minute on the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. Amen. The Lord is so compassionate and so merciful and so slow to anger that from our perspective it seems like he's too slow. Why aren't you coming back, Lord? You know, a couple of instances that come to mind. If you remember the name, the oldest man in the Bible, his name was what? Methuselah. You find out that his name, actually, if you translate it into Hebrew, it means his death shall bring. And there's a whole. If you translate everybody's name, actually, uh, you know, from Adam all the way to Methuselah, it actually tells the story of the gospel through their names. But it's interesting. The very last person, his name, his his name is Methuselah's dad was Enoch, the guy who was translated out. But the the other, but his name, Methuselah means his death shall bring. His death shall bring what? the flood the day that he died the flood came why do you think he lasted the longest this god is slow to anger this morning with you with me god is slow to anger abounding in love another thing it's he's so slow to anger that jonah knew this about him remember jonah the story of jonah He got mad at God because he knew his nature was that of being slow to anger and to forgive people. So much so that when God told him to go to this Gentile town that was doing horrible things, burning their kids alive, all this kind of stuff, he didn't want to go. He actually ran away, went to Tarshish, and basically, you know, got on the boat, and then we have the story with the the whale, right? And God went and got him, spit him back up on the shore, He says, now go do what I asked you to do. He goes to the city reluctantly. He walks in and says, okay, king, this is what God says. It's like, I know God's going to forgive you. And he's just upset because he wants them all to burn. This is Jonah. This is an Old Testament prophet. They listen to the message. They repent. The whole city repents. What a beautiful thing, Amen. And so Jonah's sitting outside of the city after this happens, and he's just murmuring. He's upset. And in chapter 4, he, just, he saw what God said in chapter 4, Jonah says, but the, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry quickly, <laughs> by, I might add. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish when I ran away from you, basically. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This guy was hooked on the, on the, the holiness of God. He absolutely loved the fact that God was a righteous God, and, he, and, and the idea of a Gentile and what they were doing to their kids absolutely repulsed him, as it should us. That this sin that goes on in our own hearts and our own lives, this is a, that's a righteous dude there. But do you see he's missing something? He also knows that God is compassionate, but he doesn't necessarily want him to be compassionate. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jonah's not God? With you, with me. And so what happens is Jonah's sitting there, sulking, and God creates this plant that grows up overnight. And it's really hot in the Middle East. I don't know if you've been there, but it's like walla walla to the tenth power. It's hot, and uh, basically this plant covers him the next morning. And he's like, "Oh man, this is a wonderful plant. How awesome! It just popped up overnight. It gives me shade." And then God sent a worm, and the worm ate the thing, and it fell down overnight. And he got up. Man, Jonah was just so upset. The sun was coming down on him. He had his shade was gone. That dumb worm ate it overnight. And Jonah's, uh, Jonah's really concerned about this plant. He's so upset that it was destroyed, and the heat's on him and everything. And God says, and he basically says, "Just kill me now." That's what he says. He said, it's better for me to be dead than to live. This is, this is a prophet of God. And God says in verse 10, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I have not concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's how It ends. That's the end of the book of Jonah. What's God saying? I'm slow to anger. I delay my wrath. I have compassion. I send my people into cities that are the exact exact opposite of the kingdom of God. And I send them in as messengers to save them from the destruction that I want to delay. That's his heart. He delays it as long as possible. That's your God. That's my God. Amen? This is why he is delaying his second coming. But if you keep reading that first verse, Exodus 34, 7, where God reveals himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand and forgiving wickedness, uh, uh, their rebellion and sin. If you just keep reading without skipping a beat, it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he goes on about the children and their children's children and all that stuff. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I feel like we we tend to go to one side or the other. Right? God is just love. No, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. No, he's just wrath. No, he has compassion and mercy on sinners. He is all those. He is God. That is his character. And let me say that if it wasn't for the compassion and mercy and long-suffering of God, we would all be gone already because His holiness remains. And there is no room for sin in His holiness if not His compassion and His mercy was a part of very, His very essence of who He is. And we miss the gospel. We miss the We miss the teachings of Scripture when we try to minimize or maximize one or the other. And that's why, you know, that's why I teach through the Bible church. you Just teach, read through it, and it is where it is. But God is slow to anger, yet He does not lead the guilty unpunished, And this is why Peter says to us in verses 9 and 10, he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Peter says. It's coming. The day of the Lord, this constant, uh, this picture of God's, intervention of judgment upon the world is what's on Peter's mind, and that is what he's focusing the church on as he prays to depart, that he would keep us focused on that fact that the holy, righteous God, although he is delaying his judgment, will not delay it forever. And that day when he decides to take us out brings salvation for us, but for the rest of the world it brings destruction and judgment. And his, his application to that is coming up but the day of the Lord is coming, a time when God will intervene in human history to bring judgment. The day of the Lord was spoken of by the, by the Old Testament prophets nineteen times. I'm not going to quote all of them, but they describe it six times as the day of doom and four times as the day of vengeance. And so this is what the Old Testament prophets were speaking about. And some of them, the day of the Lord was, a, was something event that would happen in their time, and so they would foreshadow uh, that and those events would foreshadow the ultimate day of the Lord can't get into all that theology at the moment, but the New Testament writers call it the day of wrath, the day of visitation, and the, day, and the great day of God Almighty. And all these describe uh, a time of God's total judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world, and although that day is best identified at the end of Christ's millennial reign, if you eschatology is the study of end times, and so what I, what I believe is that the Lord can come at any moment for His church Well, He will take His church up, call the rapture and the resurrection of the righteous. And that begins a seven-year period called the tribulation. Three and a half years in is the great tribulation where God begins to really pour out His judgment. You can read about that in Revelation. At the end of that time, Christ returns and establishes a thousand-year reign on earth. Satan is bound and at the end of that time, he is released again, the worlds rebel, and then there's a giant, like just basically the whole world's gathered against the Lord, and he's going to speak with the breath of his mouth, and everything is going to be all, the enemy is going to be destroyed, and then the great and the great day of the Lord happens basically, it culminates on that day. In other words, the judgment starts basically when the church is brought up. And that day, that thousand years period between that and when Christ actually does the end is kind of like the day of the Lord. A day is a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. And it culminates in the day of the Lord when the Lord speaks and the heavens and the earth dissipate. And this is what Peter's leading us to. This is where everything is gonna be set straight. The world is going to be destroyed. And you can read about, all about that in Revelation chapter six through 20. So that's your homework, have fun. Peter says that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, like a thief. Thieves come when? You don't expect it, right? Like Noah's flood, like the fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be sudden. It will culminate in the total destruction of the universe. As Peter says in verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. In other words, everything will be seen for what it is, Revelation 20.11 parallels this, and it simply says the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Wow. The Lord is holding everything together until that day. Peter's already made that clear. I love Colossians, by the way. Uh, Colossians 1.17 which says in verse 17 concerning Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Christ, everything is held together. Hebrews 1.3 says the same thing and tells us how Jesus holds all things together. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being sustaining all all things by what his powerful what his word, and this should click in your mind if you've been reading Second Peter, because in Second Peter three verses seven, and in a couple of verses, but uh, three and seven, Peter says he already said that by his word, the world came into being and the earth was formed, the heavens were formed and the earth was formed, and then in verse seven he says and by that same word the world will be destroyed. God spoke the world into existence, and he's going to spoke the world out of it. And here's the application of all this. Verse 11, what's the point of Peter talking about all this apocalyptic situation? What's the the application for you right now? Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Anybody have an answer? Peter answers it. (laughs) Yeah, cheat sheet. Yeah, you just keep reading. But if God is going to destroy those who are ungodly, what kind of people ought you to be? Godly, absolutely. Holy, godly people. Amen? And if this is where everything is going, if this is where everything is heading, what should your life be about? What should we act like? What. Should we do with our time, our talent, our treasures? What, which, what do you think our purpose is wrapped up in? I want to make sure my house is remodeled. And I want to spend all my waking days on that kingdom. Because that's my legacy. That's what's going to last. That's what's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Ever. And we go down these rabbit holes. I do it, too, with tons of stuff. I'm, not just, I'm just giving an example of things that, that tie us up, you know? You know, it's about His kingdom. It's going to last. Stock market, tariffs, I mean, what? it's just all going to fluctuate. It's going to go. You want to have your funds translate into the next economy, correct? Invest in the kingdom of God. And so now we're going to give an offering. No, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the health wealth, preachers would go, right? Listen to the Spirit in your life. He'll tell you what to do with those things. He'll lead you in the things of where He wants you to invest your time, which is precious, which is in your, your, your talent, how God's made you to invest yourself in His kingdom, in the mission of the gospel, and your treasure, your money, your hard-earned sweat, How, what do we invest in? We invest in His kingdom. And of course our families are, are part of that. God says to take care of our families, of course. But since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, holy and godly. Those are two real great training wheels for us to think about. You know, some guides, as we're going down this toboggan of life, right? And if this is where everything is headed, we should be holy and godly. Hebrews 12 parallels this. As I've been reading this, I've been seeing that Peter, or or the writers are grabbing from one another, and they're, they're, they're playing off one of each other's ideas, or the Spirit has given that to each individual, and they're writing it separately. I don't know. But in Hebrews chapter 12, whoever wrote that in in verses 25 to 29, this, this writer is pleading with the Jews. He's writing to the Hebrews. He says to them, "'See that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not, they being the Old Testament examples, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven.'" At that time, verse 26, his voice shook the earth. When God gave them the commandments, the earth shook. Everybody was terrified of God. That's because he was holy. He's like, no one is allowed on this mountain. Any animal, anything that comes on this mountain is going to die. Moses was the only representative who could go up to the mountain because God was holy. He's a picture of Christ. He's the only intercessor between God and man, all that type of... Imagery we have laid out here in Hebrews, but at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And he tells us what that means. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. Can everything be shaken in this room? How many of you grew up in California? Not many. <laughs> you can see, everybody's like... Oh. <laughs> just like, you know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> how many of you have experienced an earthquake <clears throat> yeah what's it like very unsettling everything is shaken right I got to the place when I was a teenager we just slept through them because you're a teenager A but B you're used to them and it shakes the whole house I mean just like there's different kinds it's weird when you understand that there's different kinds the kinds that jolt, the kinds that sway, there's all these, things. yeah, you never knew that, did you? But he's saying he shook the earth, this time he's going to shake the heavens. And this is what he's, he's referring to, is, that is, is the same, same issue, that everything is going to be destroyed in this way, that everything is going to be shaken, that He says here in verse 27, The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. The world is going to be shook to pieces. That's his point. The Lord spoke on Mount Sinai and it shook, but he's going to shake the world again. And he's referring to what Peter's talking about, the day of the Lord. And he goes on, verse 28 there in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. That's the kingdom you want to be a part of. That's the kingdom we're receiving, an unshakable kingdom. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Whew. I hope you got that. Since our kingdom isn't here, it's coming with Him. It's unshakable, it's spiritual, not material. Be thankful. And so worship God acceptably now. How? With awe, with reverence, fear, and Peter would say, with holy and godly lives, let your faith be demonstrated, the faith in the kingdom that's coming, the faith in the Jesus that's coming, be demonstrated here and now on this kingdom, on this earth. So when it's all gets shaken, we don't get shaken with it. Make sense? So what is acceptable worship? Thankfulness and reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is going to consume this kingdom and bring his own. Whose kingdom are you a part of? And how do you know it? (laughs) That's what it all comes down to. And how is this reflected in this church? As Peter's leaving, he wants us to be, be thinking about these things verse 11 you ought to live holy and godly lives right the christian in our lives are to be marked by holiness and godliness we're to live like jesus in other words holiness means separated set apart god set you apart by his grace when you received christ as your savior Right? He sets you apart from wrath. He sets you apart from all of that destruction. He sets you apart from sin and, and the consequence of sin and all those things. You have been set apart. What is, what is God further separating you apart from today in your heart? See, that's He set you apart when He saved you, but He's setting you apart for that day. He's still in the process, so it's called sanctification. You're positionally saved, but now he wants to work it out in your practice. That's what, called, that's what discipleship is. That's what following Jesus from now until we see him face to face is. So what's the Holy Spirit calling you in holiness to this week? What's he, set, what's he pulling you apart from, from the world, from those things? What's he doing in your heart? This is important. Respond to him in that. Because we ought to live that way, right? That is the practical application of believing in Jesus, is that it shows up in our life. And so how is he calling you to holiness this week? The church is to be holy, without a doubt. Why? Because who do we emulate? Him. So let the Holy Spirit speak to you on this week. And godliness means... Well, what the Lord has called you to, see, He's not only set you apart from the world, but He's called you to Himself, called you to be as He is, holy and godly. He has not only redeemed you from an ungodly life, but He has united you with Christ. He's given you His life, His godliness. The, the way He acts is the way that we are to act. We're to engage in His life in a practical day-to-day uh, manifestation. So walk in that godliness. We are to live holy and godly lives, verse 12. Right? The worldly person has no concern for them for these things because they don't have the Spirit of God. They don't care about holiness. They don't care about godliness. But for the believer, we're called to it and we aspire to it as the Holy Spirit of Jesus prompts us. Verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In other words, there should be an anticipation in the church for the return of Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Sadly, the NIV says, in speeds its coming. The NIV messed up there. And by the way, they correct it. There's a little, um, there's a little letter at the bottom. If, you, if you're reading your Bible, there's a letter at the end of that sentence. You guys see it there in your Bibles? Follow that letter down to the bottom, and it should say something like, or as you wait eagerly for the day of God to come. Some hard, sometimes it's hard to translate stuff in the original language over because it just doesn't translate. But that's the best translation there. Basically, it's just saying, man, uh, we're to live expectantly as we eagerly wait for the day of God to come. That's the translation that should be there. We can't speed up God's return. That's that's up to him. But that day, verse 12, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. Peter just doesn't let it go, does it? Peter, again, is describing the way God speaks how the universe will unravel in some sort of atomic reaction. He's going to speak and everything is going to go. By the way, the heavens here aren't, isn't heaven where God dwells. That's eternal. That does not change. That is unchangeable. Heaven speaks of the created heavens, the moon, the stars, the planets, the solstice, the material space-time continuum that we live in here, the earth, not eternity. They will be destroyed. Verse 13, but in, but in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I'm not looking forward to the destruction of the earth and all this stuff. I am looking forward to the promise because that is this is not my kingdom. Amen. I'm looking forward to the new heavens, the new earth where I long to be. Where's well, my home? It's where I fit. Quickly, please turn with me to Revelation 19. Verse 11 in Revelation 19, revelations at the end of your Bible. starting in verse 11, and that describes in more detail all of what Peter's speaking about. So it just kind of gives it in paragraph form, okay? Starting in Revelation nineteen eleven says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. This is at the end of the millennial kingdom, at least a thousand years from now. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So God records everything, thoughts, actions, intents. He records everything. Yes. Twenty? What are you talking about? He put 20 up there. I'm reading chapter 19. I'm not. What did I do? Do I know my Bible? You're reading chapter 20:11. 20:11. Oh yeah, 2021 I did, didn't I? Yep. Sorry. King of kings, Lord of lords in the earth. Yep, 20:11. Sorry about that. Chapter 20:11. So I've got to put a 21 over here. Oh, goober. (laughs) Don't get old. And I saw verse, verse 12 of chapter 20, excuse me. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. I'm not going to teach you all about that, but that's the temporary hell right now. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is hell 2.0. That is final hell. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So whose name do you want to be written in the book of life? You want your name written in the book of life? How does that happen? We've got a program for you. No, you repent and you believe upon Jesus Christ as Savior. That's it. God said, and right now, if if you've not received Christ, it's weighing on you like a ton of bricks. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to repentance. He's drawing you to, to Himself that you would come to Jesus Christ, the one who died in your place, that you would receive His forgiveness in place of your sin, freely given by God out of the love of His heart for you. You must turn and you must believe that He not only died to forgive you of your sins, of all of your sins, but that He rose again because in His resurrection, it proves that He has Power over death, which he will raise you to. That's the gospel. Repent, believe that Jesus died and rose again. And you will be saved. And you don't have to stand here before God and give an account of every little thing that's going on in your head because it was paid for by Christ on the cross. That does not mean that Christians now live however they want. Romans talks about that. That's a false gospel. But right here, this is where the world stands before God, and, and they will judge. Romans talks about God is storing up wrath. This is, he's storing it up. It's being written down. It's not like, ah, oh, I sinned. We all sinned in the category of sin. No, it is meticulously recorded and will be dealt with accordingly. And when you minimize that aspect of it, you also minimize the aspect that Christ, what he actually expunged from our records. Amen. Oh, the grace of God that he would wipe my slate clean. Praise God. You see that? And so, then death, verse 14, and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this, the, the lake of fire, the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's the great white throne judgment in the end of the world. Satan, the beast, the false prophets, and all who rejected Christ. The demons are in there. Everybody gets thrown into the lake of fire who does not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But Peter says in verse 13, but back in where we were, but in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so Revelation chapter 21, I believe, let us verify. Please, Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So this imagery of the city coming down, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Now it's not. Then it will be. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying. Or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Death has died. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on them, believer. He said to him, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is Jesus Christ. He's speaking. He says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. He offers his eternal life to anyone who is thirsty, who recognizes their bankruptcy in their soul. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. You come to him and you, I'm thirsty, I'm dry, I've got nothing, Lord. God, save me. And He will fill you. He will give you His water freely, the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 8, always stuck in the middle of His great promises are the other promises. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts or pharmakeia, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And John the Apostle, he continues, if you want to read it again for extra credit, in your time with the Lord this week, he just continues to go about all of what that looks like, that kingdom. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What does that mean as we're closing? Where Where sin will be gone. It won't be in us and it won't be around us. Truly don't have to lock your doors. Forever and ever. No one's going to take advantage of you, no one's going to remove anything from you. Your body is not decaying, your mind is as sharp as it ever will be. There's no sin. It's only where righteousness dwells. And that is what a believer longs for. I long for that. I'm tired of sin in me, and I'm tired of sin around me. Anyone else? I long for his kingdom. Lord Jesus, come. But Lord, have mercy on the sea of people around me that have not yet known you. And so, Lord, on the same hand, delay your coming. Amen? So then, verse 14, Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Spotless is is basically our character. Our character should be spotless, you know, and our reputation should be blameless. And we're to be found at peace with Him, at peace with one another and at peace with Him. We're not to be a warring people. You know, when, when we're not spotless and we're not blameless, we're not at peace. Amen? And you're around people like that. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation. The reason why He's waiting is because of the gospel. Be a part of it, church. Be totally invested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Just as our... other, I'm going to read this quickly. Just as our Dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So he's referring to Paul's writings. Verse 16, he writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters, and I love this. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Notice that he says that Paul's writings are difficult to understand. This is not Peter saying, I can't understand that. Peter fully understands. He's saying ignorant and people who don't know the Lord, they take what they don't know and they twist it to mean what they want it to say to their own destruction. That's what his point was. He says in verse 17, "...therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawlessness." Christ did not come save us to go and live in sin, but he called us to holiness, right? And he says, be carried away by the error of lawlessness and fall from your secure position. Peter says, I've I've warned you, beloved, be on your guard because there are those who are going to teach error. And if you don't hold on to the truth that I, the apostle Peter, have given you through Jesus you're going to fall from your secure position. I don't think this is salvation. I think this is faith footing. In other words, they are secure in Christ because they know the truth. But when that truth gets eroded by false teaching, your, your, your surety in the Lord, you get blown around by every wind of doctrine and you fall. So I don't think this is a salvation issue. I think this is, absolute, this is a, a life and peace and practice issue. But different people see it differently. And So we need to be watchful. The Lord doesn't want us to stumble in our faith, but rather, and here's verse 18, here's his final part. He says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that happening? I think so too you're here this morning. You're under the Word of God. We're under the Word of God. We're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We came to the Lord by grace. It's just goodness towards us. That's how we came to the Lord Jesus. And that opened the window to the knowledge of the Lord of Lord Jesus Christ. And now... We, we, we discover what it means for him to be Savior, and we discover what it means for him to be Lord. His sacrifice and, and ha- the depths of that, we, we plummet and we find out who that is, uh, uh, of his whole, his whole work of salvation, and then we also find the whole work of his lordship in our life. In other words, he has commands for us to follow. And as we just simply, humbly listen to what he says and obey it, guess what happens to us? We grow up. We become more like Jesus. So we feed upon his word this morning. Way back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Peter says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, slander, and all everything of that kind. Put that stuff off. But verse 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. That's the word of God. Crave this stuff. So that by it You may grow up in your salvation. God wants us to grow in our salvation. Coming to Jesus is just the beginning, church. Wow, to grow in Christ is the most thrilling thing you could ever experience in life because you were made for it. You're made to grow in Him. Who you are and why you were created is all tied up in Him. Now that you've tasted and seen the Lord Lord is good, May we grow in the knowledge of Jesus and his saving work and his lordship. For Jesus is both Lord and Savior, and last verse, to him be the glory now forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this time that we've had in First and Second Peter, and what a, what a purifying, awakening book that you've delivered to us. Father, it's, it's not how we thought it was. It's greater and it's more terrible all at the same time. Lord, what a great salvation we have in, in Christ Jesus. How merciful you've been. How gracious that we would be given the message. Here 2,000 years later, we're Gentiles on the other side of the earth. God, you've been so merciful. And yet, Lord... We're surrounded by non-believers. And we know, Lord, like, like Nineveh, we've all been lost, we've all been caught up in it, but you came through with a messenger, with a message. And by your grace, we repented and we believe. And we're part of this glorious kingdom that will never end. And so, Father, may we be your humble servants in this day and age, knowing where we've come from, Lord, and knowing where we're going to. And as we extend the gospel humbly and boldly and graciously to the world around us, may your spirit draw out cities of people that they would be spared the destruction to come. And may you just have mercy upon so many. We pray for our family members who don't know you, Lord. We lift them up before your throne. We ask that by your grace, their hearts would be pierced. They would see the futility of the path that they're on, Lord. And they would see your, your grace. May our lives be the greatest testimony and witness to them of a changed person, Lord, from the inside out. And Father, we, we ask that not only this church, but all the churches in the valley of Walla Walla, would, there would be a, a great flood of new believers coming into your kingdom that they would grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just pray these things in your name, amen.